0: And welcome to this very special episode of The Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. For International Women's Day we have a very special guest, Carol Easton. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Charlotte and I am very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Pleasure. Today we're going to be talking about predominantly Carol's work with the Young Women's Trust amongst mm-hmm. other... Um, organisations that she's worked with as well as some other figures that will relate to that as always because we always talk about figures. (laughs) To start, given that it is International Women's Day today, what does International Women's Day mean to you?
1: Well it means, I'm a bit ambivalent about International Women's Day if I'm completely honest, you know, do we need a day? Don't we need every day to be International Women's Day? And so, as much as I love it for the fact it draws attention to the inequalities and the discrimination and the fact that we've still got so long d- distance to travel before we have equality for women, both here and worldwide,
2: mm.
1: on the other hand, it annoys me that we kind of that people can kind of do the job on a day and say, yeah. "Oh well, job done now, you know, off we go, mm. and we did that yesterday, and tomorrow we're on to something else. You know we're talking about half the population of the world, it shouldn't just be about one day. So that's my relationship to it, really. Um, And so working in a charity Young Women's Trust, where every day is Women's Day, Mm -hmm. Um, I'd rather that we could somehow have it... It's like also, maybe almost, it it shouldn't be necessary. You know, either it should be every day, or maybe we shouldn't need it at all. That would be my ideal, of course.
0: Very commercialised, can't it? Yeah. So I... Tell this story. I think I told this story in the first uh, episode of this podcast. I was so thrilled three years ago. One of my favorite places to go <laughs> to exercise was doing this promo that every woman had a free class that day, and I just thought, yes, I'm so excited. Free class, it's great. And then I got there, started my period, did my boxing class anyway, <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, that was an interesting international women's day experience did not <laughs> did not really it was it was very commercialized and you know it was a weird yeah. coincidence that that sort of thing but happened but then you also felt
3: quite empowered felt at the same very time. empowered
0: <laughs> um every year they do the same promotion and mm. that's great for me as the consumer but like you said it's not really no. tackling the issue no. at all it's not even really bringing any more no. women to the studio i would imagine you're probably just you know bringing in clients that you've already had anyway mm-hmm. um
1: the other the other aspect of it for me is that in my view and I know some people don't agree with me is that we've got to engage men in this debate yes and you know, I go to a lot of meetings and even mm. more on a day like International Women's Day and we can have a great discussion about gender pay gap like we're going to talk about today or mm-hmm. other issues and there's only women in the room. Mm. You know, we're never going to solve, in my mm. view, we're mm-hmm. never going to solve it like that. So if you have International Women's Day and all the women get involved and you have International mm-hmm. Men's Day and all the men get involved. Yeah.
3: It's again, separating it's, it again, yeah, isn't it? It's I never, yeah, it's I
1: never, can never job agreed. done.
0: Definitely. I think, especially with International Women's Day, I feel like it is a very much a conscious effort to exclude. Excu- there's a very exclusion aspect to men, yeah. I think, on international... Mm. To play Del's advocate, is it a good idea to have it in somewhat in the mainstream? Do the you mean, does the minds? day keep it in yes. the mainstream?
1: I yes. think to some extent, yes, because mm. there's publicity and people's mm. energy and more organisations get behind it, and so that's what I'm saying, I'm ambivalent about right. it. Mm. It's not... I, I think it's a dreadful thing, I don't think it actually, as far as I'm aware, doesn't do harm and... You know, I've just been emailed today someone who's going to ask a question in the House of Lords and various, so it gives you a platform to make a noise. But I just worry that people think, Oh, well, job done. And as I say, I worry that if the audience is women,
3: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: then if we're talking about you know balance and employment, mm-hmm. talking about balance and pay,
3: we're gonna have to get the men involved in this conversation. I, I completely agree. I've just finished reading this book called How Not to Be a Boy by Robert Webb, oh, yes, and it's his memoirs but in a way that he tackles issues that are typically associated with masculinity and then explores and unpicks those so it's things like his relationship with his father which was quite difficult and that develops over the the narrative it's very funny and it's very relatable but it's picking at very important things like boys don't cry and you know, you can't be sensitive and you can't talk about your feelings and boys don't go to therapy and things, that's all the tra- the titles of um, the chapters. The chapters. Yeah. And then he he relates it and he's very, um, he makes some really intelligent and clever points, but in a funny, light-hearted way. It's a very good book, I really recommend it. The structural inequality impacts men and women and everybody. Exactly. I think some men will see in something like International Days this huge kind of
0: barrage of yeah. I mean, and women and women. What yeah. About when, what about the men? When's International Men's <laughs> When's International Day, classic. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. Either that, or yeah. I mean, the other side. I get, and again, I, you know, I, I will do anything to get men involved, uh, you know, in a constructive way in this conversation. Many men will say to me, they get it when they have a daughter, and you going, oh my goodness, has it really taken you? You know, you have you not had a mother or a partner or a sister or mm, you know, yeah. whoever it is, but somehow it seems to come home a bit more strongly when men become fathers and then want the best for their daughters and see the inequities that they're facing so you know at least they get there sometime yeah better than not getting there at all
3: the first figure is, of course, Carol Easton, who is the Chief Executive of the Young Women's Trust, which is a charity that supports young women on no pay or low pay. Is that's that right? right, that's right.
1: Yeah, and it supports represents young women who are out of work, not able to earn, and those struggling on low pay. And really, we know that if you're on low pay for any length of time you're very high risk that you're going to stay that way. So Mm -hmm. you're facing a lifetime of poverty. So we really passionately need to do something about making sure that women who aren't in work can get into work and then that there's quality opportunities to give them fair chances to work and thrive Mm -hmm. in the workplace so that they can have
3: fair lives. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been involved in the charity?
1: just over six years now. Uh, Yeah, we restructured, reformed, refocused, and uh, relaunched as Young Women's Trust just um, five years ago now, just over five years. And uh, it's grown and grown. And I think the, um, thankfully, there is more focus on women's issues, which is great. And we're particularly keen that people are aware that the disadvantages young people are facing and particularly young women mm-hmm. and that gets overlooked quite often you know you get these big headline figures employment's going up and pay's, pay levels have gone up and then you don't hear that you know young people's unemployment is still very high compared to other people's or that you know there's half a million young women not in work at all yeah. for one reason or another and those statistics disappear somewhere So we, yeah, we're trying to make as much noise as possible to give all young women a fair chance.
0: How do those young people find the trust generally and what is the sort of main port of call? For
1: us young women who are out of the workplace, Mm -hmm. not considered able to work, so they're at home caring for children Mm -hmm. or um, other reasons that... Or a mixture I suppose, some
0: have been in education and then haven't been able to work for whatever reason or vice versa or, you know,
1: yeah. Exactly. A
0: combination.
1: Now I think one of the shifts over those years are that the numbers have dropped actually of the NEETs, which is you could say is a good thing, but what's going up is in work poverty. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing also and what concerns us as a charity very much is young women in jobs but still not earning enough to put food on the table for them and their kids, so even then, maybe still using a food bank mm. or on really insecure, flexible working contracts, which means they don 't know one week to the next how much they 're going to pay be paid so they don 't come in the unemployed figures mm. and they don 't even come in the neat figures mm. they come in the employed figures, mm. but actually they 're not making ends meet, so you know the figures that we 've got at young women 's trust of the numbers of young women struggling to make ends meet to the end Mm -hmm. of the month are are really shocking still Mm -hmm. so we're we're concerned for both both those out of work struggling to get in or into training and those in work but for whom work is not giving them Mm -hmm. a security and an ability to thrive in their lives so it's both
0: absolutely and i also read as well that talking about um with those women particularly maybe who've been paid Maybe less than what they should be, or they've been paid in a low. Um, they've been paid a lower salary than they should to not discuss the salaries with their next employer or in interview situation. And I saw that, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting because actually, this is a topic that Charlotte and I have spoken about on this podcast before, generally about salaries and. And whether you should talk about it as a woman and you feel, always feel bad for talking about it as mm, a woman. of money. You feel so subconscious about talking I almost get an awkward dinosaur dance when I talk about <laughs> salaries because I just don't like it. But that's so important for a, mm. a lot of women. It's
1: oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's two things to that. I mean, I think as a nation, we're very bad mm. at talking about yes, money. Definitely. And it's not the same in other cultures. but particularly bad, I think, in the UK. And then, yes, so at Young Women's Trust, we're running this hashtag Say What You Pay campaign, which is to encourage employers to put a salary on a job when they yeah. advertise it mm. and one of my colleagues just now was saying what does competitive mean mm. you know it's, it's like what the hell does that i, I don't know, know actually
3: exactly. it's so irritating it's so annoying and
1: so you put a salary that means this is roughly more or less what you're prepared mm-hmm. to pay for this mm-hmm. job mm. and then the other bit of that is not to always ask people what they're being paid for because if you're on a low pay now, and then someone says to you, oh, what are you being paid, Charlotte? tell um, me. Mm-hmm, yeah. And you go, well, I'm being paid 23,000. They say, oh, well, you know, aren't you lucky we're going to pay you 24 and a half. Mm-hmm. What you don't know is that the guy sits four chairs away from you is on 35, mm-hmm. and they've got away with it. Mm-hmm. So we really want employers to be much more transparent so that you can ask the person next to you mm-hmm. what they're being paid, becomes easier to have a conversation about, doesn't it? Because Mm. the assumption will be that you're all being paid roughly the same for doing roughly the same job. And for women, if they've, for example, been out of the workplace, then they're going to be disadvantaged by that question. If you've moved country even, because salary vary hugely, don't they, depending on where you live. So there's all sorts of reasons why we would really encourage employers to be as transparent as possible and say, this is the rate for the job. Mm. Not, you know, if you can do the job, then this is what you deserve yeah. to be paid. Yeah. And women undoubtedly will benefit more out of that. Um, and you shouldn't have to have... What I always say is I don't see it as a failing that women can't, don't feel as comfortable negotiating. They have many other skills yeah. and advantages to an employer. And let's start valuing those more. Um, you know, frankly, most jobs don't require you to negotiate, but to get paid well in an interview, you've got to go in and negotiate. It makes no sense. Mm. God,
3: no,
2: that's so true.
1: What
3: was it about the Young Women's Trust that you were drawn to, and when when did you find out about it? How did that come about, that you became mm. involved?
1: Oh, goodness. The honest answer is I was headhunted, so um, I was approached by someone uh, to, and was I like, interested in this job, and... The organisation was in a very different shape and size when I took it on and we, as I say, we reformed it. And I've worked in the charity sector virtually my whole career, mainly with children and young people, but not exclusively. And I just knew from my experience that, very sadly, women's, girls' issues are still terribly live. And so when they said you couldn't know, go and work in a charity that's going to try and make a difference, not just for young women, not for women, but you know, those more disadvantaged, because there's a lot of noise, I think, about women on the board tables, mm-hmm. women at the top, women directors, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. We forget that those struggling the most are those carers, cleaners, yeah. retail workers, all the professions that we pay, the li- professions work, we pay the least. Mm-hmm. And so we don't value them, and yet we rely on them completely. Mm-hmm. So it was those two things really that um, drew me to it. And then the opportunity to create a great team and work with great people.
0: Throughout your career, a, a lot of big theme has been children and young people. When did you first have interest in working with children and young people in, you know, in a very direct way?
1: I think I, I, I had a very privileged education, and what, when I reflect on it, what it gave me was a belief that you, children and young people's voices should be heard, and they should be integral to all the institutions and organisations that they're a part of, and we shouldn't do unto anyone more than is necessary. Not, you know, children and young people particularly. So I think that was sort of in my core and then I trained to work in mental health field so I trained as a child and family psychotherapist and actually the first organization I worked in when I look back one or two I don't think they were really reaching out and allowing young people to access it for themselves to speak for themselves Mm -hmm. you know they had to mediate through a medical system or through their parents or somebody Um, and then I went to work at Childline, which, you know, most people will have heard of, and the difference there was children and young people could access it for themselves, and they didn't need that kind of ladder of hurdles to go through to get something for themselves, and I loved it. So I loved that having the direct access. And the other bit I loved was that we were doing something useful for young people, so One at a time, and they've got amazing amount of help. But also, we could start making a noise and draw attention to what needed to change in young children and young people's lives. So that, for example, you know, the uh, sexual abuse was hardly discussed until you know we made a lot of noise about it at Childline. Mm. You know, schools could do, you know, be uninspected. You know, nowadays, you think mm. that was really unbelievable. So I think that combination of let's listen, let's hear what people, children and young people are saying and let's help them amplify that voice mm-hmm, yeah. so that we create change in, you know, in society, yeah. in people's attitudes. You know, people didn't even believe abuse was happening before yeah. we amplified that voice. Yeah. You think that before that there was absolutely no way that a child or young person could get help for themselves, it just didn't exist
3: it's so strange to think about that actually because we mm. have grown up in a world where I've never known that not to be there which mm. is yeah, yeah. Is remarkable yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. how so, do you think your work as a psychotherapist, is a psychotherapist yeah. um, influence your work with in the charity sector and the people that you've been working with and the young people and mental health issues
0: because I suppose just from an observation of like child and family therapy um, a lot of the time I imagine that child will often have its first opportunity to speak out about what's happening in a a family dynamic maybe in a way that they haven't before um, which is really powerful and, and really useful and and then may not happen outside of therapy
1: it sustained my interest in well-being in mental health of course so that's always been a theme whether that's through what I do in the day job or in my voluntary work Um, So definitely maintained and again that's shifted quite a long way in terms of the stigma and the way we now talk about mental health and mental illness which is fantastic. I think the other thing it's done though is that I hope as a manager and as a a leader in an organisation... It is about listening. It sounds so crass to say it, but it really is. You know, people generally don't need advice. They generally just need a bit of help finding their own solutions to things. And sometimes I forget and I get a bit bossy and I tell people what to do. But generally, I hope what I say is, well, what have you thought of? What have you tried? How did it go? So it's more, I think, an approach to those interactions. And also that respecting people whoever they are and giving them that opportunity and I'm really lucky because I work with such a range of people um, and such an age range in the past so for me I think it's just that fundamental core of it's not about what you tell people it's have they do they believe you've listened are you going to act on that and do you respect at least what they have to say even if you don't agree with it
3: Mm. what did you think you were going to do as your career when you were growing up
1: so after i was a bus driver i think i was an astronaut (laughs) and then i did go through a ballerina phase i have to say did you have that phase? yeah Yeah. i still love dancing but not ballet Uh, so i did have a ballet phase but i also had a can i go to the moon phase uh, which didn't come to be either (laughs) and then um, as i got a bit older i moved more into science so i started actually when I um, finished school, I thought I was going to do computer science, which I did do for about a year. That wasn't me, so uh, <laughs> I moved on from that. So, yeah, nice range of you know, different things I was going to do, but more on the sciences as I got older. Mm-hmm.
3: And then you trained to become a psychotherapist after university? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah. so I did uh, a degree in psychology and then trained as a psychotherapist. And did funny. you work
3: in several different, was it NHS hospitals that you were working in?
1: Uh, they were. It was for the NHS, but not hospitals, clinics. Okay. Yes. Uh, we called it. Well, it's still called CAMS, and now it's called CAMS. So it was called something different then, but child, adolescent mental health services, and uh, in two or three different places. Yes.
3: Mm. And just the charity sector in general. What is your view on a career that has that as its core?
1: Well after I worked um, for the NHS I moved into the voluntary sector um, and that was my first period when I was at Childline and I loved it because as I said before this mix of you can still be doing you know really necessary services but you can also be influencing policy and practice and attitude and making a difference in that way which if you're sadly in the NHS that's much harder to do so I found I really enjoyed that. I think a lot of people don't even understand that their careers in the charity sector, partly because there are a lot of small charities. So the opportunities to get in at ground level are quite difficult. That's easier actually in some of the very big ones where they have graduate programs or they bring people in on um, entry level jobs. So they're different ways in. And for me, you know, I would recommend it completely and utterly because you feel you are making a difference and you work with such great people. So, you know, the the advantage of working in the charity world, I don't think I've been anywhere where people aren't committed to what that charity is trying to do. But I think that energy and passion will be very similar. And that's a real privilege.
0: I think that there's something quite electric about a team of people that are so impassioned for a purpose. And then you have all of their different... Individual attributes as well, yeah, but brought to that, yeah, which is really good. Definitely. Whenever I'm sort of in a social situation or maybe in my family,
1: she's not going to ask me for therapy now. <laughs> um,
0: and I always, I guess, I make it fairly well known. I think Charlotte and I both do that. We we love to talk about young women's issues, being young women ourselves, um, and you know identify very much as you know feminist and like talking about what that means because i think that word can sometimes be a bit people can be a bit like oh what is she talking about <laughs> um, and a lot of the time i get asked this question by men in my family or men who are close to me and they often will say well what about men and what about you know men the issues that men face and haven't don't women have it better now than They've ever had it before, but I just wondered wondered if you ever get asked that question, and what and what, what sort of things do you say in, in response to that. Of,
1: yeah, of course, and sometimes they don't really mean it, but sometimes yeah. they sometimes do. Sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes they yeah. do. And, <laughs> and and I, you know, it depends a little bit what mood I'm in, I guess. Mm, yeah. um, would you like to see the statistics on domestic violence? Would yeah. you like to see the gender pay gap? Would yeah. you like to see the, the figures on job segregation? Would you like to see, you know, some of the statistics that we have on, you mm. know, women earning less from, you know, in apprenticeships mm. from day one? Graduates earning less, you know. Would you like to, um, you know, look at how the jobs that women do are undervalued? You know, mm-hmm. we can we we can do the list, can't we? And how some of these things are going backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, look at
3: and that they're even worse when you bring in race and sexuality. Absolutely, and, and very good it, it, point. Very good it, point. It Oh, it. I've, I've just also finished reading Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About oh, race, by Reni Edo Lodge, and I'm just astounded by some of the figures in that book mm. of how bad it is right from the beginning. Yeah. It's yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I agree okay. with you. I would, I'm not sure now I can't find it now, but the figure for um, Pakistani, Bangladeshi women, if you look at the gender pay gap compared to white men there, it's huge. Mm. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Mm. You know, you put women and then you look at what they call, I don't like the word terribly much either, but intersectionality, yeah. the different characteristics, and, and absolutely, the mm-hmm. disadvantage just multiplies in effect. So you're absolutely right to mention that, and I think that's also what men, some men maybe don't see. Yeah. Yeah. I, on the other hand... So, first of all, job is not done. Job is, in many areas, going backwards. I do think that some of the changes we need will also benefit men. And that's what they don't see. You know, if you talk about flexible working, doesn't that benefit? So it's about balance too, particularly, you know, we talk a lot about the workplace here at Mm -hmm. Young Women's Trust. So (laughs) a lot of it will balance, you know, women don't work, generally speaking, when kids arrive, because they earn less. Not necessarily because they want to, because it makes economic sense Mm -hmm. in a, you know, man-woman relationship that the woman is going to not do the work because childcare is so expensive. So childcare, for example, which, you know, disadvantages mainly women at the moment, but it disadvantages men too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think they've got to see it's not, we're not ignoring men in this debate. Actually... It's not A, it's not job done, and B, the changes will benefit them as well. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that they haven't got struggles, mm. but, you know, being in the dominant positions forever. Millennia. Forever. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, you have to remind them about that as well. Experience what it's like to be yeah. a, a Bangladeshi woman trying to get a job or, mm. you know, a disabled young woman trying to... Um, get you Definitely, know, yeah. go on a Definitely. course or whatever it is, and and uh, I think I think they're kind of it's sometimes just a, a bit of a knee jerk and winding you up. Mm-hmm. I hope
3: traditional ideas of what is masculinity and what is femininity, and the other horrible statistics you see is the number of male suicides that you've got, mm. and that that becomes an equality issue as well because. What I think actually International Women's Day, an aspect I l- of love of it is it's almost like a birthday for all of my female friends and it's a celebration of female yeah, friendship. Yeah, yeah. And that is so incredibly powerful. Mm. And when I've spoken to close friends and, and my brother about this, they have very, you know, the male male and male friendships are really, really special, but they're very different, different so to different. female female so relationships and, yeah. and friendships. And I think that the way that women can share and be open is so incredibly important. And men can learn a lot from that, and it really will benefit them. Mm. And then that's another thing yeah. which is a part of feminism, is not is Isn't
1: the theme of this International Women's Day balance? I think that's a good message to men as well. This mm. isn't about, mm. you know, we want to climb over and, you know, do unto you what you've done unto us all these generations. No. It's about balance, it's about, it's about balance, parity, fairness, balance in, in, you know, across the board, whether that's at home, at work, you know, at play, whatever it is. And as you say, they're not making these huge gendered assumptions, which disadvantage men as much as they disadvantage women, and I, I, I hope maybe in a, you yeah, know, we won't get asked that question quite so often,
2: I, so I hope, hope not. <laughs>
0: The second figure is that one in three employers say their organisation has not tried to reduce its gender pay gap over the last year, and one in ten say that women are paid less than men for jobs at the same level. I wanted to begin this section asking the difference between unequal pay and the gender pay gap, because I think in the media those things get very confused. And very misconstrued and then people make assumptions yeah
1: definitely even clever people i know get confused about that mm. so the gender pay gap which is what we hear about um in the media quite a lot now is the average difference between what men and women are paid in an organization so you work in a big organization and they add up all the men and all the women and they do the sums and they say on average our men get X and our women get Y. That's more or less what the gender pay gap shows you.
2: Yeah.
1: In the, it, what it is not is two people, a man and a woman, being paid differently for doing the same job, because that's illegal. So that's unequal pay for doing the same job. No employer would actually own up to doing that, mm-hmm. because it's illegal, it's against the law, okay. because that's discriminating against a woman on the grounds of her sex. So you doing a job, you're sitting next to a guy doing a job, it is illegal to pay him the same. Having said that, Mm -hmm. at Young Women's Trust, 19% of young women under 30 told us that they're in that predicament. So we know there's a lot of illegal practice going on Mm -hmm. out there as well as the gender pay gap, which is not illegal. It is a relatively useful measure to show that on average women get paid less For whatever reason Mm -hmm. the reasons generally being they don't get promoted so you know they're in the lower levels of jobs but not Mm -hmm. at the top and that the jobs that women tend to do are valued less and paid less so if you look at caring compared to banking or Mm -hmm. retail compared Mm -hmm. to engineering you will always get more women in some of those and they will be paid less and they're more likely to get stuck on those lower pays as well that's explains the gender pay gap. Mm. What it doesn't cover is people either being paid less than the living wage, or the minimum wage, which again is illegal, or discriminated against on the grounds of race, gender, Mm -hmm. and being paid less than someone else for doing the same job, or a very 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 similar job.
0: Mm. Of those 19% um, that you mentioned that said that they were in that predicament that a man was being paid more than they were, often we don't feel or they don't feel confident enough to confront that necessarily in their organisation. Or if you're needing that job very much, yeah. then you don't want to risk being fired or mm-hmm. any sanction being taken against you. So that's a really awful kind of yeah. cycle that you must
3: feel very trapped in. Mm-hmm. My godmother discovered that she was being this was years ago, but she discovered that she was being paid so much less than her male counterparts for exactly the same job and she became a real wh- whistleblower on it but she was only able to do that because she knew that she was going to leave anyway so she didn't have yeah. anything to lose a lot of women say that, that a lot of women say yeah. that but With they would either leave or they something. yeah story. if you're yeah. in a job that you really can't leave and <laughs> you yeah. can't leave it you don't want to risk that by calling your employer out even though you feel that you should and you and your female colleagues will obviously benefit from that.
1: Exactly right, and the low pay you're on, the more desperate you're likely to be, Absolutely. Yeah. and the less power you have, and the more power the employer has, and so it becomes inordinately difficult. So we have to change the system, not the women. And, you know, it does take some brave women to call it out, so that there are controls put in place, there are penalties to pay if it becomes clear. We've got a way to go if, you know, we know that it's happening at that sort of level. The other illegal thing is to pay someone less than the minimum wage to which they're entitled. But we hear from a lot of young people that that's happening as well. Mm -hmm. So, employers are getting away with illegal practice, and taking advantage of those most vulnerable, inevitably. Whether that's also true about sexual harassment. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you really need a job, you need to put that food on the table for your children, mm-hmm. your employer can take advantage of Absolutely.
0: you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're less inclined to talk,
3: speak up about
0: it as
1: well. Yeah. If you need yeah. Um, yeah. And why should? Yeah. Why should you? Uh,
3: what I really like about the research that you've done and the way that you've released it from Young Women's Trust is that you've given kind of action points because I think lots yeah. of the time research comes out and then you just think, okay, well, what, what do we do? Yeah. What, what's? Yeah. And so the ones listed here is to ban asking the current salary. Right. You, yeah. Um being more transparent on pay in adverts, so saying not getting rid of competitive salary <laughs> and <laughs> not yes, specifying yeah. that, Definitely. and then targets for apprenticeships, which I thought was interesting. So do you mean something different by targets and quotas, or talk me through that element of it?
1: Yes, I think targets, whether it's for apprentices or for women in organisations, are important, because once... In most business, once you set a target, someone's motivated to meet it. Mm -hmm. So it is a step towards, I think, doing action. And one of the problems with the gender pay gap reporting is, at the moment, there's no penalty for not doing anything about it. So you can publish your figures and you can publish them again next year and nothing much may change. So having a plan to actually do something about it and set yourself a target can mean that people are taking action. And it's not going quite as far as quotas which are quite controversial, but at least people know they may be measured against achieving those targets, so they're motivated to do something. And on the apprenticeships, we're really keen that employers take action to encourage women into businesses where they may be very much underrepresented at the moment. And that's a perfectly legal thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's not taking it's not positive discrimination positive action is going out there and saying oh gosh we've got we've got women underrepresented in our workforce so we can go out and we can do special work in schools or we can put in our ads that we're going to run taster days for women or we're going to have special training days it doesn't mean we can uh, and even to the point that if we have a man and a woman and we can demonstrate that women are underrepresented in our company, we may take the woman ahead of the man, but only if it's in that circumstance. The same thing goes for other areas where you may be underrepresented, whether that's ethnicity or disability or mm. um, other um, individual characteristics. We'd also like for women to be given a better chance to enter areas where they're very male-dominated.
0: Mm. Do, do you think that quotas are necessary for that to happen initially?
1: no, i don 't think I do, and I do understand that quotas are difficult because people need to feel they 've been chosen on merit, yeah, and it 's a really tricky one. you know you imagine yourself going into a job and thinking oh, i've only got that because you yeah. know I was the ninth woman or whatever it is mm. so On the other hand, you've got to encourage people to be more open-minded about how they assess your merit Mm -hmm. because as a woman you're more likely to be discriminated against and they won't see that because you might be a bit more quietly spoken or less prepared to negotiate your pay that you have as much to bring that job as a a man who can do both of those things. So targets are important. I think employers knowing they're going to be penalised if they really behave badly and i think uh so i do think a lot of progress could be made before we impose quotas Mm. because that brings with it a whole tranche of you know i I even remember hearing years ago in i think in germany somewhere where they had quotas for disabled um people And you were fined if you didn't meet it. And some companies just decided to pay the fine. They didn't change their mindset. Mm. There wasn't a cultural shift. Mm. And given we're looking for a cultural and attitudinal shift rather than just someone saying, you must do this, I do hope that it be more on the agenda, setting targets, being measured and having to publish plans And show that you're really making an effort would Mm. be a better way of doing Mm. it. You know, I think of one of the young women uh, here at Young Women's Trust, and she went to work on a construction site, and she was terribly in the minority. And in the end, she just couldn't cope with Mm. what the men called banter. Uh, yeah? yeah but what yeah. she called discrimination <laughs> yeah uh, well if there'd been 10, 10 that, or 20 or 30 of them I hate
0: things that are called banter just because and then they think because it's labelled banter but it's therefore funny and therefore mm-hmm. not offensive mm-hmm. or yeah not discriminatory. exactly
3: discriminatory one of my friends is an engineer and she has had emails that are addressed as dear gents or dear blokes kind of it's just a generic email sent around to the entire team and it's a male <laughs> wow. subject. And you just think, oh my God, it's 2018, like it's 2019 yeah, I it. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how is this still happening? And how are you not realizing that you just don't do that? It's so, it's, it's, it's just different. excluding people. Any team is going to be made better by having a broader diversity of thought and experience in that and I think that's what so many industries need to recognise, that there are so many benefits for everybody when you have different minds working on one problem. Also with the banter thing, I just, I think
0: now, obviously, (laughs) sometimes it's met with, oh Georgia, you're so uptight, stop being so annoying, but I just feel like colloquially, you know, it at a, on a social level, that's where we can kind of start to sort of call out when it goes too far. Yeah. Because there are things that are, fu- you know, if someone makes a joke and there are things and then it's funny about whatever whatever it is, you know, and, and you know, fine. But when it's derogatory, fem- you know, the female is the target or the butt of the joke or there's something about mm. me, you know, I've had countless Me Too jokes, Harvey Weinstein jokes. And when they go so far, I'm just like, I'm not like, that's not funny. It's not banter. Grown adult educated men will still will still do that all the time. Mm. And I find that astonishing.
3: I think the language that we use is so incredibly important. important. I think it's important to change the the narrative. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: And you think they wouldn't want it the other way round? No for a second. I think for us to shift those cultures it can't be one at a time whether that be in politics Mm -hmm. or in in engineering or construction because actually what happens is that the few women who do survive play by the men's rules
2: Mm -hmm. rather than changing
1: the culture. They play by those rules
2: Mm. and
1: then nothing has changed. Mm. And I know why they do it and I don't blame them but actually it's not challenging. The status quo it means that actually the next woman who comes in behind you is not going to find it any,
3: mm-hmm. any and i guess easier. it's that, that thing again where if you're the minority, you're already having more challenges as that person and then to take on another challenge and trying to change the system when you're one person yes. is also very difficult okay. so Cut completely yeah. The third figure that we're going to talk about today is the sculpture Fearless Girl by Kristen Visbell which was unveiled on International Women's Day in 2017 and I did some research on this and found that it was supposed to be a temporary sculpture and they then extended it from a few weeks to a whole year and it is now being moved to a more permanent location because I think it's been dangerous where it is. It's been so popular. They've had it facing the Charging Bull sculpture near the New York Stock Exchange, but it's in between two roads. Mm -hmm. And this sculpture has been so incredibly popular that people are all crowding around it and they're too near the road. Uh, I've also discovered that it is moving to, it's been in Ireland and then it's coming to London in March. So people will be able to see the sculpture for themselves in the UK. But it's made of bronze, it's four feet tall, and it is symbolic of the power of women in leadership. So that was the drive behind it. And to highlight the lack of women in prominent roles in finance. Yes. Which was weird because
0: the company that commissioned it, um, there was kind of criticism of the the company that commissioned it actually... Had issues in their gender. Yeah, they got themselves. They paid a really
3: five good. million dollar fine yeah. because State of Street Global Advisors,
0: I think, was their name. Yes, yeah. right. which is quite funny. But it's good that they. I mean, showed light on it. But it was. But it was ironic that they had that sort of issue in, in themselves.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, There's a really lovely quote actually from Betty Liu, who's the executive vice chairwoman of the New York Stock Exchange, which says she represents potential progress and hope, but also all the women who have fought. For for equality before us Ooh, yeah, good. That's a Really lovely quote. Yeah. And she's
0: in the power pose which i love yeah
3: power yeah. poses
0: you know mm-hmm. talk about that a lot about um you know sort of the importance of body language and your mindset and all of that sort of thing and so that statue really sums that up and i think i read somewhere that it sort of shows in one image what hundreds and thousands of words can loads of reports and loads of documents about talking about women inequality it just sort of sums it up in one go yeah um and i thought that the what was interesting is the artist who uh created charging bull which i think was created in 87 yeah um claimed copyright from for the fearless girl statue because they said that it changed the meaning of the bull yeah. Making the bull seem like the patriarchy. Like the patriarchy <laughs> made the bull look in a in a negative light.
3: Yeah, when the artist who was Ooh. Arturo Di Modica, mm. um, he had intended that charging bull to be about the resilience of the nineteen eighty seven recession. Recession, yeah. So I think that's interesting how the interaction between these yeah. two sculptures yeah. has almost become kind of femininity, masculinity, symbolic. But it, yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a child too, isn't it? Yes, yes it how is. How old,
0: roughly? About 11? Yeah. 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 She's fab. She's like a mini like, superhero. And yeah. It's almost yeah. as if she's just yeah. sort of... You're at that age where you want to be an astronaut,
3: a ballerina, a bus driver, a baker, a singer. Yeah. Yes. You want to and do then what happens
1: when you're 14 or 15? We'll come on to that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so I think what we wanted to talk about was more generally the ideas of femininity and the symbolism of this sculpture. So how do you think femininity and the idea of that has changed over... To know, since you were 10 or 11 at the age of that?
1: I don't know that it's changed. And interestingly, to prepare for this, I had a bit of a chat with some of my colleagues who range in age, so the youngest in the office is probably in her early 20s and um, then going up into 50s. And I, I think it's gone backwards and forwards at the same time. So I think uh, there are, for some women, there is a freedom mm. that has increased since certainly you know our mothers and our grandmother's generation in terms of what you can do and what you can wear and you're still considered feminine and then there's also a regression where more and more young women seem to feel they have to appear in a certain way and where my particular bugbear is six inch high heels and
2: Mm. you know
1: function in a way that's uncomfortable impractical um and certainly doesn't allow them to empower themselves because it's not possible, literally, to run in a pair of six-inch heels. So, I think it's going both ways. I think there's a pull and a push. There's a pull back in some traditional households, too, where women, you know, my partner works in a university. He hears about a lot of women not even allowed out or um, not allowed to engage. And then other women, as I say, who have more freedom. So, I think it's a both-and. Mm-hmm. I think, actually... My own daughter, who is in her 30s, said to me she feels her peers are more traditional than I am and my peers, which suggests things are going backwards, not forwards, which is a bit mm-hmm. depressing, really. I think the issue about that statue is interesting as well. And one of my colleagues said she'd been, she's seen it for herself. I haven't had the opportunity. And she said she heard some really good conversations going on mm. with children around it. I fear, though, if you look at some of the other research on what happens when girls, particularly, hit adolescence that that passion and that I can do anything when they're 10 and 11 disappears virtually Mm -hmm. overnight and doesn't seem to re-emerge and that peer pressure and the pressure of you know this is how you should look definitely um, sort of looms all over again so in a way putting a child there is interesting, I think it would be even more interesting if it was an adolescent
3: Yeah, I think you're right and I, I saw Matilda recently in the film oh, no. it oh, yes. was absolutely brilliant but I think that's exactly what I came away thinking, that the age of that child, so she's only five in the story mm. and she has the same pose actually as the fearless girl on the poster with her hands kind of on her hips but I think that the, the un, unapologetic intelligence of that little girl and her ambition and drive is something that you often see in young 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 children that then diminishes and then you almost have to rebuild it there are things that I did when I was at primary school and in my early secondary school where I would be very I would be so much more hesitant to do that and to go and sing on stage and dance and perform and and even just you know, putting up your hand in class because you know the answer. All of that, I just, I just did it. I just didn't really care. But now I'm more aware of what other people think, mm-hmm. and
0: you're more self-conscious. Yes. yes. Yeah. I love yeah. the Deborah Frances White imitation of that. Where it's like, um, if I could just maybe, boom, not, but just if I'm just mm-hmm. going to put the idea you don't have to. You, it doesn't may not be right, but you, and I just thought, oh, Georgia, you probably <laughs> do that quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you see young men behaving in this way? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. No. Definitely not.
1: How do we do this to our young women in not. the twenty-first century? I kind of catch myself even doing it, which is always scary, isn't it? But I think too the problem isn't the women. You know, I work very hard here to say it's not the women that I have to change, mm-hmm. and let's value what women bring. So the fact that we, you know, women generally said less confident. Well, actually, I'm not as worried about that as I'm worried about men having too much confidence. Frankly, mm. if you ask me, there's some politicians around the world that may come to mind, maybe, <laughs> yeah, if no, you just don't think yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, 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 where their yeah. arrogance levels are off the scale. Yeah. Am I more worried about that or about the fact that you go, oh, well, I'm, not, I'm really not sure. That's great, <laughs> that's fine. Let's start valuing that. Let's yeah. start valuing Definitely. the characteristics that women tend to bring, which is a mm. bit of self-doubt. Great. I don't want all these men who think they absolutely know the answers and no one can challenge them. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way, even in a business like I run here, I want people who can say, well, it might be like this, or it might be like that, or Mm -hmm. I got it wrong. Golly, never mind. sorry, but we'll Mm -hmm. move on. Well, I think what we tend to do is say always, it's the women that have got to get more confident. Mm -hmm. The women have to be more brash. You know, what would happen if women ruled the world with the characteristics that we've got now? Not emulating Mm. the way the men do it.
0: And uh, so... I think when I was younger as well, I I could literally get up on stage as a character. I could sing, I could dance. We did
3: a lot of dance shows together. I absolutely (laughs) loved it. I was very,
0: very confident and wanted to be in the performing arts for sure when I was younger. Then you hit about year nine, year ten, and it's all about employability university, um, Grades. this sort of grade system, and I think that definitely played a part in knocking a lot of my confidence, because then it all became about, okay, how are you going to be as employable as possible? You need to do as well as possible. If you don't do well, then this is going to happen, and then you kind of, your confidence get knocked again, and it's like, oh, you probably do science, or something maybe more sen- like sensible, or sort of a humanities, like a history or English. Or where's that going to lead you career-wise? You're always kind of being asked those sort of questions. It doesn't take in those sort of those sort of artist art yeah. subjects um. that actually are actually really important in confidence.
1: The young women we work with here, I think many of them haven't won't have completed school won't mm. will have come no, out without course, qualifications of course, of course, yeah. at all, and then the challenge is, is very yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, and also I think they will say school didn't really prepare them for the mm. sort of work that they're going to, you know, some of the basic living skills I think skills for most people need, actually,
0: school doesn't no. actually prepare you for the workplace, no, it? doesn't, does
1: it? it doesn't. And, you know, at Young Women's Trust also, we want to see more young people, for example, doing apprenticeships and mm-hmm. getting benefit from them. And again, that's not something that school Yet I think encouraged sufficiently. Yeah, what we'd like to see too is that there are opportunities beyond school. So for mm-hmm. a lot of young, you know, yeah. young women, I, you know, I think of one for example. You know, her mother died when she was very young. She ended up looking after her sibling. School becomes an irrelevance actually. Yeah. But when she was twenty-two, twenty-three, she's looking around thinking, well, now I could actually do something but there's no one to help me, I can't afford it there's very little financial support and we kind of write people off and that concerns me and particularly for young women because they're more likely to end up in these low paid insecure work. so I do think there's also something about a second chance for people who miss out or just can't benefit from it at that time. And it's
3: about lifelong learning isn't it? It's opening that up to more people and valuing that and not having such a prescriptive attitude in many ways, I think. Yes. So with this sculpture, I think for me, it represents a lot of, sort of symbolism and values. And the final question I wanted to ask was, what are the values that you try to live by?
1: As I said before, I hope that I... I mean, I, I don't know whether it's values or I Sometimes I think it's a bit of a neurosis. You know, I like to feel I'm being useful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the thought of not doing anything in my life, that would benefit potentially somebody else. Um, So I try and live by that, I try not to be as judgmental as I am sometimes of other people. (laughs) Uh, I think sometimes it's quite good fun to be judgmental and then I catch myself and say no, don't do that. Um, But I do, yeah, I think for me it is about am I doing something that's useful, am I listening um, and acting on what I'm hearing preferably. I accept that there's different levels of privilege, I would see myself as very privileged Mm. What upsets me is when people don't even know it and acknowledge it. So I am not about to give up everything I own and, you know, sleep in the street. And and I, um, even though I do want to be helpful, but I do also want to never forget that Mm. there are certain things that I have, certain benefits that I've had in my life that other people don't have. I think that's really important to me.
0: Mm. And I also wanted to ask, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given?
1: So I, I think, um, funnily enough, and this may chime uh, with some of your um, listeners who are mothers, when I went back to work full time after I'd had two children, my boss at the time said to me, uh, for the first week or so, you'll, you know, it'll be really hard to focus on work. Hmm. Then she said, the second week, by about the second or third week, you'll feel guilty because you haven't thought about your children until the end of the day. And I found that really because she was right. She was completely (laughs) right. And when it got to sort of three in the afternoon, it was time to dash to the, you know, school and pick them up. I realised yeah. because I have been very fortunate and had work that's very stimulating and I've enjoyed, I hadn't thought about them. And it was actually, I did find that helpful because it kind of made me think, oh, I'm not the only one who does this, that I can actually still be a good mother
2: yeah.
1: and engage at yeah. work and, and allow that to stimulate mm-hmm. me and just have the bad luck from the other parents as I rushed up the school path yeah. more I or less I think that's an, time. an issue
0: that all working women... Or working mothers would really really relate to I know my mom always said that she never felt when she was young when I was younger she never felt that she was doing one justice I began to be like a holiday from home <laughs> life <laughs> oh no yeah really? I was like <laughs> okay <laughs> I'll look forward to that one
1: <laughs> <laughs> just you know it was confirmed for me because my I remember my I can't remember how old she was my daughter said mum I really admire what you do and it was like oh my gosh you know that was so important because you know as a you know as you say still is women more likely to be juggling and oh no I'm not allowed to use managing someone told me recently that job interview tip for you both your listeners that women when they go for job interviews Mm. tend to say they're juggling various things apparently men will say they're managing their portfolio so i didn't use that word juggling that's a good scrap that we're we're not going to use that (laughs) um but it it did make my heart warm that she felt that you know not only did she see i was managing but that actually Mm. she really rated it definitely
0: thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the figure podcast we'll be back next week as usual thank you so much carol for joining us Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and where can we find all of the information on Young Women's Trust? And so get in touch.
1: There's a website, www.
3: Did I say three W's? Yes. Uh, <laughs>
1: YoungWomen'sTrust.org, and everything's on there.
3: Okay, fantastic. And do you tweet? Um, send us a message if you've got yeah. any questions. We'd love to hear your feedback Absolutely. and enjoy we'll International Women's Day. Enjoy the With all its conflicting <laughs> clashes of emotions and <laughs> tell lots of your friends and family and women in your life and men in your life that you love them. That you love them. <laughs> Excellent.